Uh, we didn't have a stinger last week. Oh, I didn't even notice. Sometimes we just don't say enough funny stuff to include at the end. You know, that's okay. Mm-hmm. Can't always be draining buckets, slam Dunkin' Donut. <laughs> I don't know. Welcome to episode 433 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Brian Levin. And I'm Marshall Bach. Welcome back for another episode. Brian, how are you doing? Doing just great. Got a busy week. You got a busy week. We're busy boys. Busy boys this week. So let's keep it tight and run through this real quick. Keep it right. Keep it tight. We got some new very important pixels to welcome in to Christian Rotzel, Jack Meredith, J.S., Zach Geist, Kate Hartman, Mike Kenny, Wilson, Andre Denise, and Matthias Kronberg. Welcome all. Welcome one. <laughs> welcome. In, in either order. <laughs> in either order. Welcome to the fan. Yeah, welcome. Wonderful to have you here. If you didn't know, we're a listener-supported podcast. Every week, people join us at patreon.com slash design details, where for just a buck a month. Just a buck a month. Just a dollar a month, you get access to bonus episodes. Every week, we call that bonus episode the sidebar. Sidebar, sidebar. The sidebar is just an extra episode. We answer an extra listener question. Last week, we talked about the latest Apple event. This week, we're going to be talking about the default typeface and how to use that in your design system If that's interesting or you just want to get access to the whole backlog of bonus design details content and get those double apps going forward, head over to patreon.com slash design details. All right, tiny bit of follow-up. Last week we mentioned a phrase called ruinous empathy and you and I were both like blown away. Like, oh, what a crazy definition. Well, it turns out ruinous empathy comes from the radical candor framework. Yule Albert tweeted at us. Yule says, I recently listened to the book and enjoyed it. Even though it's targeted at leads and managers, I still thought it was insightful, even as an individual contributor. So yeah, I don't, I've heard a lot about this book, never read it. Have you read Radical Candor? I started reading it. It was assigned to me by my manager a few years ago. He like bought uh-huh. us all copies and asked us to read them. And I, I read the first couple chapters and it was a little, little dry for my personal taste and I just never got back into it. But if I would have read farther, I would have known what that phrase meant. Well, it's got a very nice two by two quadrant. I mean, Lord knows we all love those two by twos, but this one has care personally, like care on the vertical axis and challenge on the horizontal axis. And ruinous empathy is in the top left corner where you have high care, but low challenge. And the subtext says silence to avoid hurting the person's short term feelings, even though they'd be better off knowing in the long run. So that's ignorance and no change. All right. Well, uh, maybe I ought to read the book. I don't know. I feel like it's been around. Everyone's read it. Everyone's talking about it, you know? Yeah. All right. Thanks for the tweet, Yule. Yeah, thanks. All right, Marshall. Main topic time. We have a listener question from Priscilla then, who opened an issue on GitHub. Priscilla says, the lead developer at my work requested to remove some of the icons because they slow down development time when having to wait for one to be created grappling with SVGs, etc. Unfortunately, he is right, as they are time-consuming to make, especially good ones. And since I'm the only UX UI designer in the company, it slows me down and I become the bottleneck. That said, I feel that icons give character, polish, and professionalism to an otherwise extremely utilitarian UI. Icons can also be functional in that they help make certain elements stand out from an otherwise huge sea of text, but they are still seen as fluff. I've asked for another designer to be hired or request our graphic designer to create icons when he has time, but these suggestions didn't get any support. 
How would you make a case for icons when they are seen as mere decoration? Ooh, Ooh, Marshall, okay. I feel like this is going to tickle your brain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so I think we're going to tackle this in two parts. I'm going to make the case for icons, and then you're going to help her figure out how to solve the problem of getting them made at work. Yeah, you kind of teed that up as though I was going to make the case for not having icons, <laughs> which <laughs> yeah. would not be wrong. I will admit, before we even get started on this, I have a very complicated relationship with icons. Complicated in the sense that I think they're very important, and when they are done right, they make a product look and feel magical. But sometimes I do think designers care too much about them. And I think it just comes down to the stage of the company, I guess. Like over-optimizing for icons too early, if that makes sense. Yeah. Anyways, that's the only reason I could go a little bit on both sides of this particular argument. But anyways, okay, Marshall, make the case. How would you make the case for icons if everyone at your company thinks they're decoration? Okay, well... Uh, they are kind of decoration and that is one aspect uh-huh. of them, right? Like they do serve as decoration. They, they add personality. So like one, they can give some flavor to the UI. So it's not just a bunch of text labels around, like some, some imagery is nice in general. Uh, like I, th- I think Priscilla was saying in the question, like they help out an otherwise extremely utilitarian UI. But they can also denote or even like reinforce aspects of your brand. So if your brand is fun and bubbly, your icons should be fun and bubbly, right? Like if you're working on a very serious app, your icons can help clarify and, and, and reinforce that concept of security and professionalism if that's what you're going for, right? That's one of the few ways aside from color and container shape that we can really evoke a, a vibe for the app through our designs. Do you agree with that? Yeah, and I think, I mean, this has been one of the, the interesting parts of my work at GitHub is we we definitely try and stick on, on the mobile apps. We try and stick to uh, native platform designs, but it is the icons that make it feel like GitHub, like the issue icon, the pull request icon. These are things that are pretty core parts of GitHub's brand identity, right? It's ownable. Yeah. Yeah. You can own those things so that when people see that icon set, even outside of the context of your application or your site or whatever, they know that it's your company. Precisely. Okay, so next thing is scannability. All right, so I don't know if you've noticed this yourself, Brian, but when I'm looking for something on a page, I'll like, kind of blur my eyes and, and you know scan for shapes. And it's a lot easier to scan for iconography than it is for text, right? You have to read the text. Right. You can just see the shape. So one, it can help you track those shapes as you're scanning through a page, but also they can help with the hierarchy, right? So again, when you blur your eyes, those icons will stand out apart from text because they're, they could have a heavier fill or a heavier weight to the stroke or whatever so that they can easily be scanned by the user's eye. Additionally, they act as anchors on the page, so they can help provide context for a label. If you want to keep that label short, the icon can be additive to the label text to help give that extra context if you do it right. They can even act as like a pseudo illustration for, you know, a header and a masthead or anchor for an entire portion of the page. They also can allow for like a visual cadence. So if you have a bunch of actions down the page or even horizontally on a shelf, the iconography, even though the labels for the text might be different lengths, the icons can be a consistent rhythm either across or down the page for your eye to scan. Yep. And uh, I guess maybe my last point here is 
they're great for non-readers. Um, there's a lot of people getting on the internet now that can't read for one reason or another. Giving them symbols that they can identify and take action with is far more valuable than text that they might not be even able to read. You just got to be sure that the icons that you use are obvious and easily interpretable by a wide variety of people who speak different languages and cultures and stuff so that you're not mixing signals or conveying an idea that you don't intend to with that iconography. Same same rules that you would want to follow with color and language. It's like, make sure you're using the right tone for the right folks. But yeah, otherwise, icons are great for non-readers. So that's my kind of quick four-point case for icons. They give you personality they make things easier to scan, they can anchor elements on the page, and they're great for people who can't read. I think those are pretty good. That was just off the top of my head. If I had more time, I could probably think of more more good reasons, but Yeah, and I mean, clearly there's it's not like everybody else, every other app in the world just decided to use icons cuz they're decoration and we're all just looking around like, yeah, they're all pretty. Like, no, clearly there's a reason that Apple has invented probably at this point tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars building freaking SF symbols. Like the technology and team required to make that work isn't just to make pretty icons. Like icons clearly serve a purpose and provide business value because they make our apps easier to use and understand. I think the tension here that Priscilla you might be facing and something that I've experienced in the past is there is a time and place to invest in like a custom icon set, like bespoke icons for every screen of your app. And oftentimes that moment isn't when you're like a pre-product market fit startup with two people and you haven't even built the thing. Like I think there is an order of operations here. So I guess my advice, like if I if I was in your position, okay, you've tried to make the case for why icons are important, but you still can't get buy-in. I still feel like there's a, a way to sort of progressively walk your way back from a binary decision of we either have them or we don't to maybe there's some middle ground. So one option is to basically hire a pre-existing icon set. There's a reason that icon sets exist and that people charge for them. And in many cases, icon sets these days are free or people will offer parts of them for free. It's like everybody needs these things early on and they don't have time to make them from scratch. So a couple that stand out, like Feather Icons is a very popular one that has been remixed and extended. So just search for Feather Icons and Feather Icon add-ons and you'll find a million options. And it's a great baseline. It's a great place to start. Other ones that come to mind, Iconic. I also went on Figma and I just went over to the Figma community and searched for icons, not even really doing a targeted search. And there's hundreds of icon sets. There's a very popular one called Ant Icons, Lucid Icons, Material Design Icons, Bootstrap Icons, on and on and on. All of these are free and open source and available to use. And they've been around for so long that the teams working on those have really thought through every possible icon you could probably want. Now, of course, there's trade-offs. By hiring a set, it might feel more generic. So depending on the space you're operating in, maybe your users will notice. But if I had to guess, 99.9% of the time, nobody on the internet will be like, oh, this product is also using feather icons. How dare they? <laughs> like, yeah. this is a not bespoke icon. I don't think anybody really cares. Mm -hmm. So anyways, that's one option. Hire, hire a Figma set. I also look through the plugins section of the Figma community. 
And you could spend some time looking here. A couple that jumped out to me was one called Icons Toolbar, which says it provides utilities for designing icon systems. And another one is called Icon Sizes, which I guess is just shortcuts to quickly make variants of a single icon at different sizes. And so all this leads to my next point, which is, okay, you can't, if you can't hire an icon set or your team doesn't want to use something that's pre-existing, you got to get faster. And I'm not speaking from experience in this case because I am not an icon designer. This is probably one of my biggest gaps in my skill set is I don't know how to do any of this. But clearly from knowing nothing to being at like martial level of designing icons where you can just knock them out quickly, like you understand and have mastered the tools to do this, there's some middle ground and a gradient along there where you can figure out how to be faster, either through mastery of the tool or even just being more strategic with how you manage your time. Like for example, are you constantly doing icons just in time? Like when you encounter a feature, do you have to switch gears, switch contexts, go set up your icon project, do the one icon, go through the whole export process, integrate into the project, and then get back to your project? Or is there a way to sort of batch icon work into a specific period of time? Maybe the first Monday of the month is icon day or something. I don't know. Like Whatever it is, is there a way you can batch it so that you don't have to context switch as much? workflow switch as much? Mm -hmm. Uh, Is there a way to anticipate what icons are coming up and think about ways to design your icons so that maybe one of them can be extended in multiple ways? Um, What's a good example here? Like uh, the design systems team at GitHub recently redesigned the issue icon and they came up with some clever ways to differentiate between open, closed. There's actually a couple different ones for closed. And it uses like a common element. It's a circle with a dot in the middle, but they swap out that dot in the middle to indicate its state. But you always have this common outer circle or ring. Mm -hmm. It's a family. So yeah, it's part of a family. So can you anticipate what icons are coming up and sort of think about how how would these work together? Is there are there common elements that I can design once, and then there's maybe one sub element of the icon that's swapped out to represent a state or, or some kind of variant. Yep. I we don't have any visuals here to know what kind of icons you're designing, but is it possible that you could simplify your style to make these easier to create and maintain? I think that's the beauty and maybe the drawback of some of the modern icon styles, even the ones I was talking about earlier, like Feather and Iconic, is they're very simple. Like they use very simple uh, strokes with rounded terminals. What's what's the proper word here? Yeah, round terminals, and, rounded corners. And yeah, so they, they look very simple, but it also makes them dead simple to draw. Like you just use the pen tool and draw them and round the corners. Um, so perhaps there are ways for you to scale back the complexity of the icons. And then maybe a last case here, like again, we just don't have enough context, like what the size of your company is, what the design team is like. But if you're the only designer, it seems hard to justify hiring the second designer to only do icons. Yeah. But this is definitely something that would be perfect to contract out. Like this is what freelancers exist for, right? Like we don't have time to do this ourselves, but we can throw $2,000 at the problem and somebody else will solve it for us. I just pulled that number out of my butt. I don't actually know how much it would cost to get a custom icon set. Maybe a lot more, maybe a lot less, depending on your needs. But you know, that's maybe the last step here before I would give up and be like, all right, fine. If I can't do any of these things, then I guess this company really doesn't care about icons. And then at that point, you've got other problems on your hands. So I don't know. Anything else I missed there? Alternatives you can think of, Marshall? No, that's about it. 
Um, All right. Well, hopefully that answered your question, Priscilla. Yeah, let us know if you have any follow-ups. Hopefully this was helpful. Okay, cool things? Cool things. Shall I? You shall. All right. Marshall. (laughs) Okay, so I've talked about the pop socket on here before, and I'd recommended that on a previous cool thing, yeah? Uh Uh-huh. So an alternative to the pop socket entered my awareness, and uh, it's called Osnap is is the company, and they have... Another accessory, this this company has a ton of accessories that go along with this pop socket alternative thing. They have cases, they have car mounts, but they also have a wall mount. I think it's called snap mount. Everything is snap because the name of the company is O-Snap. Um, but the snap mount is great, and Brian, it has solved a problem for me that has long been bothering me. So, <laughs> okay. so I listen to audiobooks, and... Unlike music, it's hard to listen in the shower with all the shh of the water going and the echo of the room. It's hard to hear human voices through a speaker that's normally good at playing like pop music with good bass, right? So my HomePod Mini in the bathroom isn't good for audiobooks. I can't hear it. I have to turn it up all the way. And even then, it's kind of hard to tell what's being said. So, so I had a speaker in the shower. It was like a, it's okay if it gets wet type of a speaker, but it sucked. This wall mount thing that Osnap makes is great for the shower. So I just take my phone into the shower with me, snap it onto the wall, and the speaker is close enough and and good enough that I can hear human voices without having to strain or pump it up so loud that the entire house is blaring with my audiobook. So anyways, the Osnap snap mount is my cool thing this week, Brian. Yeah, you're overthinking all of this, Marshall. You can just wear your AirPods Pro in the shower. <laughs> you know what? I One of my other solutions was I bought like swimming headphones. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, wow. But if you get any amount of water in your ear, it plugs up, you know, it gets in between the speaker and your eardrum and you can't uh-huh. hear it. Sounds like underwater. <laughs> Muffled voices like this, you can't hear anything. So like there's no uh-huh. good solution until I found this. And it's really just stick yeah. your phone on the wall. Uh, well, cool thing. I also have the problem. I have a tiny shelf in my shower that I, I stick my phone on. Uh, yeah, I don't have a shelf. So yeah. Yeah, there you go. What's your cool thing, Brian? My cool thing this week is the Opal C1 4K webcam. Have you heard of this, Marshall? Yeah, you uh, teased this last week, I think. Uh-huh. Have you been on their website? Well, I did after you tweeted it and then teased it on the show. I had to go look up what it was. So yeah, I know a little bit now, but tell me. Yeah, it's interesting. It's a very expensive webcam. Like in the in the realm of webcams, it's up there. It's $300. And the marketing page says this is the first professional webcam DSLR quality for the first time. And I guess my I have a very odd relationship with this thing already, just in a week of use. Because on the one hand, it is a very good webcam, but it just doesn't really work with anything. Like even around the video conferencing tool we're using, around doesn't detect it for some reason. And even when you go into the app settings for Opal, and you switch the resolution from anything from from 1080p to anything higher, it just shows this big warning that's like, just so you know, a lot of apps don't work with anything above 1080p. Because most apps like Zoom or Google Meet or whatever, they're all going to downscale, right? They're not fucking streaming 4K for a Zoom call. So I knew this going into it, but right off the bat, it's like, well, that if the whole value prop is that this is a professional webcam, but apps aren't going to support it, then it's really hard to justify the price. So I don't know. I, I mean, it's definitely better than my MacBook's webcam. That's without a doubt. 
And it's definitely better than the LG 5K Ultrafine built-in cam, but it feels incremental. So what I actually got this for, what I wanted to use it for, was for some of the stuff I'm doing on YouTube. And I had a very frustrating experience last Thursday, Marshall. I recorded a whole video oh, no. using the new webcam, and I had set it up. I I'd bumped up the resolution. I'd like increased my bitrate on OBS and recorded a whole thing, like a 30-minute video. And then I exported it and it takes forever. Like when you're dealing with that long a video, all this shit takes forever. So it's like 30 minutes to export, 30 minutes to process. 30, like Are all you on of, an M1? On an M1. Like, wow. yeah, it takes forever. And so I get all that. I pop it open to, to start previewing it and it looked horrible. It was super choppy, basically like 10 frames per second. Like something had gone seriously wrong. So that was frustrating. So then I opened OBS and I just spent, I don't know, two hours. I need to spend more time because I still didn't figure out, but I spent two hours till probably midnight just futzing with settings. Like, can I, can I record myself with this using OBS and have it be overlaid on top of a screen recording? And I, I couldn't figure it out, honestly. So anyways, that's why I'm torn about it is it's a beta product. I should disclaim this. It's a beta product. So I'm getting a beta experience right now and I'm super happy to live through that. That's what I, I love using products early. It's going to be really fun to see it evolve. But there is just this tension right now that it doesn't seem like it plays well with existing software for actually using webcams. Now, I will say the last reason I got it, so I wanted it for a bunch of reasons, um, you know, from, from the streaming and, and YouTube and this kind of thing. But another one is it comes with an app that gives you a lot of really cool controls. And that part is actually pretty nice. So you get a little C1 icon up in your menu bar and it gives you controls over the camera, audio, you can add effects and you can do manual adjustments. And so, for example, I have a very strong backlight in my office where a lot of sunlight's coming in behind me. And that can really wash out the back and make my face look really dark. And so the C1, the app, gives me manual control over exposure, brightness, contrast, white balance even, all this stuff. And that is really cool. So while the like picture quality feels like an incremental gain, the ability to adjust the brightness makes me look better, if that makes sense. So it's not really the sharpness of the image, but the ability to customize the brightness. So anyways, I guess this is like my first impressions review. I think it's going to get better. Everything in the app and, and on the box and all that is like, this is a beta product, you know, adjust expectations accordingly. But I did have a few people reach out in the DMs after I tweeted that teaser image of the box because it is a very beautiful and attractive product. And there's a lot of people on the wait list and a lot of people want it. And I would say right now, it depends on what you need it for. But I will say for the price range, like if you, for people who are going for DSLR quality Zoom calls, okay, well, you got to go buy a DSLR camera and those can be pretty expensive, like definitely more than 300 bucks. And some people are spending thousand, 2000 bucks, like a nice Sony. So this is definitely cheaper than that. So there's just a lot of interesting tensions and trade-offs between the price point, the software, the integrations, et cetera, where, I don't know, we'll see how it evolves. I'll, I'll keep it, I think, unless it truly can't work with OBS or other recording software for me to do YouTube videos. In that case, it's just not worth it, and I'll, I'll trade it out for something else. Cool. Well, kind of cool thing. <laughs> First impressions. This is Brian's tech corner. <laughs> 
All right. Well, this has been episode 433 of the Design Details Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Let us know what you thought. We're on Twitter, as always, at Design Details FM. Thanks so much to Priscilla for asking our question this week on GitHub. If you have your own question or topic that you'd like us to dig into in a future episode, head to github.com slash design details slash design details and open an issue. It helps us keep track of things we need to talk about and things we've already talked about. So uh, we definitely appreciate those. Otherwise, if you're enjoying this episode and want to hear us keep talking, consider heading to patreon.com slash design details. If you go there, you can sign up for just a buck a month and get access to bonus content. We call it the sidebar. Sidebar, sidebar. Today, we're talking all about default system fonts and how to use those in your design systems. Once again, that's patreon.com slash design details. All right, that's it. We'll catch you next week. Bye. What's your cool thing, Brian? One sec, I got just slamming recycling outside. <laughs> like, can you just place gently your bag of glass bottles into your bin instead of fucking slamming them on the ground? Bottles and cans, just clap your hands, just clap your hands, Brian. What's that from? <laughs> it's from that Beck song, Where It's At. You got two turntables and a microphone. This is a pop culture reference I've, <laughs> I do not understand. <laughs>